Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices, keeping people at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, we have just an incredible treat and an honor to be speaking with Dr. Jack Grappel, Professor of Exercise and Sports Science, Professor of Business, and the Faculty Athletic Representative at Judson University. Is it Judson or Judson? Judson, yeah. Judson mm-hmm. University. Jack also served as the co-founder of the Johnson & Johnson Human Performance Institute. He is an internationally recognized authority and pioneer in the science of human performance, speaker, he's an author, and was recently inducted into the United States Professional Tennis Association Hall of Fame. I mean, Jack, I'm just scratching the surface on what obviously I could have mentioned on the bio. So I can't wait to have this conversation. It's, it's, it's a real honor. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it as well. I really am. I'm looking forward to it. Well, before we get into, you know, the work and, and if, we, if we put the titles aside yeah. and, you know, all of the stuff that, that, that you've done over the last, you know, 70 plus years and, and just being such a, uh, a bright light to this world, like who is Jack? You know, who are you? That's fair. You know, Jack is an older guy, baby boomer, who by all rights on paper growing up uh, in Southern Illinois should have been a farmer. And <laughs> everybody in his background is a farmer, started playing baseball and uh, thought that was his way, his ticket to being accepted into his family. His mom and dad made him take tennis lessons when he was 11 years old. He hated the sport. Fascinated. Uh, and then uh, when he was 13, a buddy of his by the name of Bill Wicks said, hey, would you like to play some tennis with me? And I liked Bill a lot. And I, honestly, I didn't think anybody in the family would find out about it. I said, sure, let's go play some tennis. And all of a sudden, Bill says, hey, there's a tournament in St. Louis. Do you want to go play? And I'm going, dude, I just started learning. And <laughs> he says, I'll teach you how to score on the way to the tournament. And um, <laughs> We get there, and and I found out I fell in love with the game, and then I taught myself to play. I taught myself to play, and I, I think that's really the, the key. I mean, everything that's happened in my life, I really taught myself. I didn't have a whole lot of formal training, whether it was business, tennis, uh, speaking. Um, I, re- I really never had any formal training. I did it myself, and and um, by the grace of God, here I stand before you, and you know, a lot of worldly success, a lot of problems personally, but a lot of worldly success. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there, there are no ups without the downs, right? Right. So where do you think that, I guess that drive that's, you know, to, 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 to self teach or, or the curiosity to really explore these, all these various fields that you've worked in, like, where do yeah. you think that comes from? Well, it wasn't necessarily positive. My okay. father, my father was an alcoholic and I love him. We had the last 10 years of his life were really great. We were able to reconcile and, and they were very, very joyful the last 10 years of his life. But he ruled the roost by fear and mm. it was never good enough. And I found myself, I'll prove you wrong. I'll, I'll show you. And it started, I was an Eagle Scout mark at age 13. Okay. That's unheard of. Yeah. I mean, I would never tell a young person to be an Eagle by 13. You know, let the process take take you. Learn, go, th- enjoy the process. Not me. I was an achiever. I was going to yeah. prove my dad that I could do everything. He, you know, university. You know, he, he said tennis. You're not going to be able to do anything with tennis. Okay, 
Dad, I'm going to play in the Big Ten. And and he said, right. Well, if you're going to go to Illinois, I'm I've, and I've got to pay for it because you're not going to get a scollarship. You're not that good. And this is how conversations went. He yeah. said, you got to study agriculture because we're, we're all farmers. I said, okay, I'll study agriculture. I walked on the team, Mark. I made the team as a freshman. And then I had a great career uh, at Illinois playing tennis. I got my undergraduate degree in wildlife biology. I couldn't get a job. So I think, Mark, to answer your question, I was the perpetual dreamer because yeah. I was always about what's possible because I'm not sticking around here. I mean, that, that was honestly, I'm not sticking around here. So what's possible for me? So I was that perpetual dreamer who tell me I can't do something and watch me. And um, again, it, I, I made the team and, and then there's even more to go on with that, but sure. I'll stop there. Well, who do you think, I, I'm just curious, who do you think you would have been without tennis? I mean, tennis has been such a huge part of your life. <laughs> well, the joke in my family is that I'd be counting wolves in Wyoming. Um, <laughs> that because actually, I, after I graduated, uh, I did, I, I had a good, I had a good career, maybe a, a double specialist in the Big Ten. And um, the... I, my undergraduate degrees in wildlife, I started grad school in population genetics. I honestly would have, if if I hadn't, my sister, bless her heart, to this day said, when I was 22 years old, I was an absolute mess. I was lost. She said, why don't you go talk to the people in kinesiology? Mm. And I said, well, dad will kill me because he just doesn't believe that's a viable field. And, you know, in that day, it was called physical education. And uh, she said, who cares? Go talk to him. Just you don't know what you don't know. So she forced me to go make an appointment with the department head in kinesiology by the name of Dr. Rollin Wright. And Dr. Wright, again, by the grace of God, admitted me to the program, the Masters of Science program. He said, but we got to find out if this is the right place for you. So you've got to take in your first semester, you're going to take cadaver anatomy, human <laughs> cadaver anatomy, exercise physiology and kinesiology. And Mark, I fell in love with it. I got straight A's. Okay. And that was the, and that was all that it took. And, and then... It was another mentor by the name of Charles Dillman, Dr. Dillman, who was my kinesiology professor. And that it was May of 1974. I'll never forget where we were. We were in Freer Hall on the campus at the University of Illinois. And he said, Illinois has written about this, by the way, since then, the, the 17 words that changed my life. And he said, if you really apply yourself, you could, become, you, you could one day become a pioneering leader in the science of tennis performance. Wow. And that was all it took. I wow. made my own career. I, you know, so there, there was really, it was an academic approach. The Olympics didn't have sports science yet. I, I, I did it. I took it by, and then became the chairman of the sports science committee for the United States Tennis Association. We became the, the, the model for all the Olympic sports science committees for the USOC. And that would, but that was how it happened. So fascinating. So were you, were you still playing tennis at that point? Or were no, you yeah, transit? I played, I played till my mid thirties competitively. Okay. And then I started working with so many players. I just couldn't. Yeah. It, well, things shifted for sure. Yeah. What lights you up about the game? Oh, it's the greatest game on earth. I mean, there's, there's, I've, I've done a lot of research on this in the mid nineties. I wrote, a uh, the health, the 35 health benefits of tennis and all based on science that <clears throat> there's no sport in the world that, Many, many sports are good for you, by the way. I'm not minimizing any sport, but yeah. there's no sport that if you look at the physical, psychological, well-being attributes has all the attributes that tennis has. Um, yeah. And 
there is just no question in my mind. It's probably the healthiest sport that a human being could participate in. Interesting. Because I, I look at, I mean, I love tennis my, myself. I, I never played competitively, but I, I, you know, leisurely have played and and follow it. Um, and I'm always amazed, like there's the physical aspect, of course, and there's the tech, you know, the, the, the technical ability and like all of it. Yeah. But, but then there's, you know, and this is having, you know, I read Agassi's uh, yeah, book open. and open oh, yeah. and uh, Maria Sharapova as well and so yeah. forth. And you, you just start to really like, you can see this watching this from afar on TV, but you see how in a moment minds can start to self-destruct under, you know, the pressure of, of the match or whatever is happening. And I, I feel like there's a, there's a correlation as well, or a link with, I noticed this in golf as well. It's like, as soon as, as soon as you you don't hit that you know perfect putt or whatever, like things just change on a on a dime in a way. And I'm curious, just all the work that you've done with with players and your study, you know, like how do we how do we tackle those kind of things? Because I'm always yeah. I'm always amazed that at that level that you know uh, that you know is still one of the downfalls to many players. Well, the thing that I've always loved to say, and I say this to people in business as well, your brain is not your best friend. No, uh, because. <laughs> Because what happens is, think about this, in tennis and golf, in tennis, we found this out though in the, in the 80s, when I was the chairman of the sports science committee, we were traveling all over the world. We were realizing that other countries were doing much better than we were because they were doing so much in coaching education. Okay. So we started really breaking down the game. Jim Lair did a lot of this work, but it was found that only 35% of a tennis match is spent hitting balls. 65% of a tennis match, you're either in between points or on the changeover. Think oh, about wow. golf. Think about golf. A four-hour <laughs> round of golf. How much time are you actually executing preparation and execution of a swing? Oh, it's going to be way minutes. less. Minutes. Yeah. Minutes. And yet you're out there four hours. So the question we start asking ourselves, what's going on in your brain during all this time? Yeah. And we've come to find out that a lot of people, if they can start thinking about what, what, are, what are you thinking about? How do you control your habits? How do you control what's, what you're thinking about? The idea of, uh, I mean, Jack Nicholas had a great phrase, and I'm going to really butcher this, but he said, you know, it, it, that you, you enjoy the walk, you execute, and you don't even worry about where that ball landed. It yeah. is what it is. You have no control over where that ball landed. So now enjoy the walk. So present. And, then when, and, then when you, and when you get there, now take a look at everything. Same with tennis. Points over. How do you, you know... Jim Lair, again, was studying all this, and he came up with 16, he just came out with the 16-second cure again. They just redid it, and it's okay. the 16 seconds between points. They have positive physical response. So you rewire the brain. Mm -hmm. It's funny. The brain takes over. It's, it's so funny. I do this in groups all the time. I say, everybody knows what the Empire State Building looks like. So your listeners right now, have some fun with this. Get a mental picture of the Empire State Building. Okay, everybody's yeah. got it. Now, Get the Empire State Building out of your mind. And let me know when you got the Empire State Building out of your mind. Got the Empire State Building out of your mind. <laughs> you cannot get the Empire State Building out of your mind because I keep talking about the Empire State Building. But you see, this is what happens to us in life. Yeah. You get all these negative things going on and that obsessed. It just takes over. So the only way you replace the Empire State Building is think about something else. You have to, you have to consciously replace the image. So we teach individuals, how do you change the focus of something 
Like if so, if you're a glass half empty person, how do you change that image to glass half full? How do yeah. you, because you've got to change something. You can't just say, I need to get tougher. No, that won't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, I mean, let's practice. I mean, this, this really links well to mental fitness, obviously. Like, yeah. on, let, let's keep it in, in, into, uh, on the court with, with tennis, like say, you know, whatever, there's a bat, there, there's a, uh, a bad shot or whatever, like yeah. the, the game has shifted and they're, you're in the players in that mode, right. Where okay. the, the negative looping, you know, right. narrative is starting to, 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 to fire up. Like so, what are some of the, the techniques that yeah. you've seen work? Here's exactly what we taught. There are four stages. Let's say you miss an easy volley. You're at the net. You miss an, a duck. It's a sitting duck. I mean, this ball by all rights is gone. Your point, but yeah. you missed it. All right. Now here's what you do. You, you have a plan in place. You immediately image the correction. You might do that with your racket. You might put the racket in your opposite hand, do it with your hand. And you see players doing this all the time. Yeah, they it's image true. In correction. They image the, what the good shot looks like. So what are you doing? You're replacing the Empire State Building. Yeah. You're replacing the image with a positive image. I made that shot. Now, stage two, you put the racket in your opposite hand. Your posture is upright. We tell you, we say you want you to have the walk of the confident fighter. Why? Because mm. you're it's almost like the matador walk. Your, your chest is upright. You get more oxygen into the lungs. Take two deep diaphragmatic breaths now. You're bringing your heart rate down. All this happens in seconds. Yeah. So positive physical response. Now, relaxation phase. Walk of the confident fighter. Now you get behind the baseline. Now look into the opposing court. Mentally prepare. Stage three is mentally prepare for what's coming up next. And then step four is your rituals. This is where you might tug on your shirt or you bounce the ball. <laughs> this is where Nadal comes in. <laughs> then you, so in other words, you recapture, you recover the brain with a positive image. And by the time you're after these few seconds, you're in your rituals. Now you're ready for the, to execute the next point. I love it. I mean, so applicable to, to really any area in life. Yes. Right? Yes. This is like, this is regular. I mean, you don't have to be uh, a tennis player to, to, to use these techniques. <laughs> well, I was talking to somebody earlier today. I was being interviewed for a, for a journal and, and they, they said, well, how do you do this recovery thing in business? I said, all right, let's say you're back-to-back -back meetings, meeting, 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 but you're, you're just fried. You, you know you need a break. Well, I have, tell somebody, tell everybody you got to go to the bathroom. I've never heard anybody say, no, you can't go to the bathroom. So say, I've got to go to the bathroom. Now, maybe you don't, but what you do then, you go to a different floor. Mm. Go to a different floor. Maybe you don't have to go to the bathroom at all. Just think about what you're going to be doing this weekend. I want you to replace, again, replace the Eiffel Tower of those yeah. negative back-to-back -back meetings. So now you're walking down the hallway. Maybe you go to the bathroom, maybe you don't. But you're thinking about maybe date night this weekend or hanging out with your kids or seeing a good friend or calling your parents. I don't know. But it's something that recaptures, resets the brain. Then you go down or up the stairs and go into your next meeting refreshed. It's a <sighs> dose of recovery. So these microbursts we've studied for years. Okay. Hello, friends. Given you're here, I'm making the assumption that you're motivated to be mentally fit. So with that in mind, I want to let you know about the Better Questions newsletter, which publishes once or twice a month, providing all of us the opportunity to slow down, think, and ask better questions. As you know, quality questions are my thing, and this is an opportunity to share the prompts I've studied and curated to help our minds be healthier, clearer, more intentional, and expand our mental capacity. 
You can sign up over at behindthehuman.com slash newsletter, which will also give you a preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. That's behindthehuman.com slash newsletter. Now back to the show. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the 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 rituals and the importance yeah. of having these rituals in our our regular life and daily life. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I default right to you know because he he's often discussed for his <laughs> kind of quirky rituals. Someone like Rafael Nadal, right? And, <laughs> and for the longest time, it's like, why is he sitting there, you know, picking his butt and moving yeah. his his water bottles around and whatnot? And then I think, you know, it was probably you that wrote something about this at one point. I, I didn't know you at this at this point, but there there was a period I remember where someone started to talk about the the importance of having those rituals. And it wasn't just some sort yeah. of weird superstitious thing. Uh, and it was more so like getting to your point exactly in your flow uh, or in the technique is like bring your mind into, I guess, a comfortable state, right? Or a familiar safe state for you. Well, it's, 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 it's basically turning the brain on that it's showtime. You know, for okay. example, there were studies done on Michael Jordan when Michael Jordan was playing. Let's say he had 23 free throws in a game. And let's say he missed the first 15 or first 20. If you looked at the timing of when he got the ball from the referee, how he looked at the basket, how he breathed, how he bounced the ball, Mark, there was no difference whatsoever wow. in the ritual of any one of the 23 free throws. That's how specific these great performers get. And the more structured your rituals, the more you're, you free your... Now, I know that sounds illogical because we often connote being told what to do or having structure with being less freedom, when mm. in fact, human beings are creatures of habit. Yeah. When we are in a habit that works for us, we end up freeing our brain so that we can really be on. So yeah. those rituals really tee us up to be successful. So what questions would, would you leave us for anyone to just, I, I don't know, just start thinking of some, some baseline rituals to you know, identify like, you know, where you're at right now, whether this is business or you in your personal life, just to figure out how you can bring this, this technique and actually implement it in, you know, your regular day, whether you're an athlete or not. Yeah, start really simple. I mean, start with maybe before you get ready to, maybe you're going to have a tough meeting with a child. You know, yeah. or maybe you're going to have a tough meeting at the office. They're, they're very similar. You're going to have a tough meeting. Don't say child or office, just tough meeting. Start with a couple of deep diaphragmatic breaths and let your brain just sort of focus on what needs, what do you, what do you want the result to look like when this is over? Mm. How do you want this to end? You know, and you're not going to, you have no control over the outcome, by the way. If you're meeting with your child, many of us that have met with our children, we know, we <laughs> don't know how those meetings are going to end. But you see yourself in the process. It just starts simple, Di deep diaphragmatic breaths. You know, then it gets to some people, they want to uh, they want to go for a quick walk before they have a tough meeting. Um, it was funny, when I was on that really large speaking tour in the mid-90s, I used to have this thing where I would snap my fingers. I'd start doing, I'd start snapping my fingers. And I'll never, you know, I don't remember the name Zig Ziglar, the great yeah, motivational yeah. speaker. Well, Zig yeah. was on that tour. And I'll never forget it in his Mississippi accent. Here I am snapping my fingers. I didn't even know what I was doing. He goes up, he goes, that's a nice ritual. Like, <laughs> and I just, and I didn't even know I was doing it. But what that did, as I look back on it now, I was getting my body into an ideal performance state 
Yeah. Because when I started snapping my fingers, it was I was ready. And I wouldn't snap my fingers until my notes were on, the prop, the, my props were on the stage. Okay. I wouldn't snap my fingers until, okay, we're ready. Now let's go. Go time. That's your trigger. I love it. That was my trigger. So what, what have been some of the, you know, some of your personal rituals? I mean, you, you do a lot of speaking, you've obviously worked yeah. with a lot, of, a lot of different athletes, giving big presentations. Like how have, I guess, how have your own practices evolved over time? Well, the one thing that I'm known about it by people that, that really are aware of how, how I do, I, I'm, I'm anal about preparation. Yeah. My preparation rituals are beyond belief. I mean, I've done thousands and thousands of presentations over the years and I prepare so hard as though the next one is the first one I've ever done. Okay. Because I care about every audience. So I really study what are their needs? Who am I speaking to? What do we need to do? So I never, ever, ever allowed myself to become complacent. I always put myself into, because I'm doing it for them. Mm -hmm. I was gifted to be a good speaker. So I want to be the best I can possibly be. So I would prepare, make sure my notes were in the right place. I had page numbers on my notes. If I, if I was told I had 30, like the big speaking tour that I was on, I had 35 minutes and you walk on stage and there's a counter at 35, 20,000 people in the arena yeah. and that counter starts going down. I mean, I had time codes in my notes that told me whether I needed to speed up or I could slow down, I could tell another story or not. Um, I had those kinds of rituals. And then when it was time, I'd start snapping my fingers. When I snap <laughs> my fingers, it's ready to go. So yeah. those are the kinds of things that I built into my life. Yeah. What about like, what about your daily, like any kind of morning routines or evening wind down or, you know, when your mind is thrown off for the, whatever the reason could be, like, do you have any go-to uh, rituals or practices to, to bring it back into? I, I, I'm a coffee drinker. I, yep. I love every morning, very low lights. I do spiritual reading. I, I, I yep. read a scripture verse and I have a cup of coffee. And that before I do anything else, I get up and my son this morning, he's, he, he left early. So he was gone to go work out. And I was by myself here in the house with our cats. We've got two cats. I had the lights low, had made a cup of coffee. And, and that just sets me up for my day. Yeah. There's something beautiful about the morning. I, I do something similar in the morning. And th there's just, there's something about starting the day on your own terms that it's right. hard to put, you know, words to. It's, it's, cause I mean, the opposite is obviously, you know, you fire up email or you put on the news or whatever. There's a million different things. And you're just, autom you do that and you're automatically on someone else's agenda. That's exactly already. right. I think, I think, I think you word it beautifully to start your day on your own terms. Yeah. Yeah. Where can we go from here, Jack? I mean, I, I, there's so many different things that where we can, we can, we can jump into. One of the things that comes to mind is, and now I understand just knowing, you know, uh, a little bit about your, your, your childhood and how you grew up and, and how you wanted to be, you know, the best essentially. Uh, cause I remember thinking there was a part I was, when I was doing the research for this, I think you had just re received two knee replacements and I don't know yeah. what the time gap of, of the recovery or the healing was, but then, you know, you went and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with your son. Well, and for, for many, um, you know, there's exceptions to this, but for many, like they thought, first of all, with, without, without knee replacements, uh, most people don't do that. Um, but then there's, there's always a, a host of excuses <laughs> why you can't do things. And you're obviously the opposite of that. So why don't you 
spread in a little bit of color of yeah. how that all came to be. Why did you do it? How'd you feel? Okay. Well, it, it was fascinating. I adopted myself. I went to China by myself. That's another story all to itself. Okay. To adopt my son in 2008. Um, he was four years old. So I, I, I love to say that God has a sense of humor because he's going to take this man in his mid-50s and he's going to put this four-year-old screaming child who hates his guts and he's going to teach this young this man how to love somebody who can't speak. I couldn't speak Mandarin and he can't speak English. <laughs> um, so we come back and two years later, my, the arthritis in my knees is so bad, Mark, from all the years of abuse for sport. I had to. Have, I, I decided. Look, I want to play with this kid. He's only six years old. Yeah. So I'll take three to five months of not being able to do anything, and and so I got both my knees replaced at the same time. Now, knowing me, I go big <laughs> or go home. I said, "All right, I'm going to make an experiment out of this." So I said, "I was going to get. I was going to get clear to hit tennis balls in 90 days after bilateral knee replacements, and I did it." Oh wow! <laughs> and then. A little later on, I started reflecting that when I was 20 years old, my father, now again, it's good that we started out with my dad and my estranged relationship. Um, when I was 20 years old, he called me one day at school. He said, don't plan to play many tournaments this summer. And I'm going, why? This is going to be my senior year. I want to I want to play. He goes, yeah, I want to take a trip with you. And I'm going, all right, well, where do you want to go? He says, I want to drive to Alaska. Wow. Now I'm going, wait, now remember, and I, my first words are, we'll kill each other. You know. Dad. Yeah. And he goes, well, I think we need to do this. And I said, all right. So we took six weeks and we drove to Alaska. Now we did almost kill each other, but that was the beginning of at least communication for my father and I. Mm -hmm. um, Why so do you I think you wanted to take that trip, Jack? He was an outdoorsman. He loved the outdoors. As I say, I was an Eagle Scout. He, I think it was the dream for him. And I was probably the only one that would do it with him. Okay. That was probably it. He probably couldn't get anybody else because we camped the whole way. We had a little camper cover on the back of the truck and we camped the entire way. Wow. Um, for six weeks. Um, and it turned out okay. So I hear I adopt my son. And when my, then I adopted my son the same year uh, later on in the year that when my father passed away. When my father passed away, the pastor who did his eulogy talked about the trip to Alaska. That's all dad ever talked about. Mm. So now I get both my knees replaced. I'm older father, obviously. And I'm going, I need an adventure with my son like Alaska, but I don't want to drive. So I'm kind of <laughs> go bigger, go home. <laughs> so I start studying and I realized that Mount Kilimanjaro is the tallest mountain in the world that you can actually hike. You don't need any ropes or any crampons. You don't need any technical skills. And I started doing more research in it. And, I, and because of my outdoor background, I always had an affinity for Africa. Okay. So I, and my son is a cleft palate child. So I took him to Rocky Mountain National Park. He was in Boy Scouts and he had to do a merit badge. So we did a six mile hike between 10 and 12,000 feet. I just want to see how's he going to respond to altitude. Mm -hmm. And he did pretty well. So I asked, do you want to go higher? And he goes, well, how much higher? I said, about a mile and a half vertically. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> yeah. He, and he actually, here he is, he's 11 years old at the time. And he goes, in the U.S.? And I went, <laughs> no, in Africa. And he goes, okay, like that. <laughs> Dad's I, losing it. <laughs> then I made sure his mother was on the same page that I was um, because she thought I was nuts. Um, 
So then we trained. We trained together for a year. I played tennis three or four days a week aerobically. He was in karate. And he went on two years later, won a national championship in karate in the AAU. But And then in March of that year, we climbed in August. We started doing hiking-specific training. So backpacks, poles. We got mm -hmm. on river bluffs near us. There's no altitude. We live in Illinois. Um, and then the week before Kilman, week before we went to Africa, I took him back to Rocky Mountain. And so we tried to acclimatize a little bit. Yeah. And then uh, we flew to Africa. We did a safari for the first week in the Serengeti. We saw the Great Migration. So it's just he and I. He's 12 years old. He's 12 years old. And I was 65 at the time. I don't mind you know my age. Um, so I'm, So we get on the mountain on August 2nd of 2017. I'm the oldest on the mountain and he's the youngest. So 12 <laughs> oh, years old. How amazing is that? <laughs> yeah. So my nickname was Babu, which in Swahili means grandpa. And I'm going, seriously, seriously, I've trained for over a year to do this. You're going to, and I've got my 12 year old son, you're going to call me grandpa. Yeah. They were very respectful. They'd go around, the porters would go around you like gazelles and pole pole babu, which means go slowly, <laughs> grandpa. And uh, here I am with my 12 year old son. And it was just the most amazing experience. Uh, it was the experience of a lifetime to do this. And, and our whole goal was, you know, we trained mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically that, you know, like if we don't make it, we don't make it together, but we're going to climb it. We're climbing Kilimanjaro together. And um, bless his heart. And do you have just a minute? So I can tell you a little bit yeah, more about the story. Because every night, he's 12 years old. Now think about this. 12-year-old doesn't know anyone in the group. We had 29 in our group, doesn't know anyone. And Every night, instead of going to our tent and reading a book or playing on his phone, even though there was no Wi-Fi at the time, he, he could have played on his phone, he stayed in the, in the dining tent and played cards with everybody. Uh -huh. And people had a hard time beating him. He's, he and I played cards all the time. His nickname became the Big Dog. Now, <laughs> we're doing this for six days. We're on this mountain for eight days. On the sixth night, you summit. And you leave the camp at you're, you're at you get to fifteen thousand three hundred feet, and you leave at ten thirty or eleven o'clock at night, and you're going to summit all night long. It's the worst. It's the longest night of your life. Yeah. You're just going four thousand vertical feet on switchbacks, and we get <sighs> to we get about four hundred meters from the cone of Kilimanjaro, and it is hard. I mean, the scree is just loose, and it's just chuck your poles, take a stick. Chuck your poles, take a stick. You honestly don't know. You just take another, just keep taking another step. And all of a sudden I heard a noise around us and I got startled and I looked up and the Rangers, it's Kilimanjaro is a national park. They had people by both arms who were throwing up. They had violent altitude sickness Ugh. and they were trying to get them down as fast as they could. And I got scared for my son. And I turned around, his name is Shen. I said, Shen, are you okay? And he doesn't answer me. And now I get really firm because I'm scared. I go, Shen, you got to answer me. Are you okay? And, it, and he, he doesn't move his head and he, he just shakes. He just nods his head up and down that he was letting me know he was okay, but he couldn't speak. The guide who was with us heard me get firm with him and come back and says, Shen, do you want to go back? And right then, Mark, I thought it was done. I thought you created the opening, you know, the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The opening, we're done. He says, do you want to go back? And here's my 12-year-old son. He can't talk, but he shakes his head no, like I'm not going back. And then with wow. that, all the people, Mark, that he'd been playing cards with, they're only 400 meters above us on the cone. They saw him 
stuck. And they saw the guide and I talking to him. And I hope I don't tear up, but everybody started screaming and cheering for my son. Oh. And, and just, come on, Shen, you can do this. And I said, do you want to go? And I didn't know if that meant go back or go forward. And he started walking and he made it to the summit of Kilimanjaro. Um, and I will tell you, it was because of the love that surrounded my son in that moment in time that got him to the summit of one of the world's most iconic mountains. And I asked the question, why can't we have that kind of love in our lives and in business and in every yeah. aspect of our life? Why can't we do that? Because it was that love that got him to the top as a 12 year old child. Like he couldn't come back to that. Well, I mean, you've got me tearing up over here. What, what did, I'm curious, what, what did he say about that moment when he could speak well, again, of course? <laughs> the, beauty of this, the beauty of this was that I had really spent a lot of time because I did not want him to climb for me because mm. that could have been dangerous. That could have killed him. I mean, via altitude sickness can kill people. And I didn't want him to say, I got to keep going for dad. Yeah. And so when I asked him later on, what went through your mind? He said, uh, dad, I, I wasn't giving up. I was going to do this. I don't know how I, I didn't know how I was going to do it. And he said, yeah, it sure helped when I heard everybody cheering for me. But he yeah. said, I wasn't giving up. I was, it was, it was I words, not couldn't let you down. And that, yeah. that made me feel really good because he owned his climb, Mark. He owned it. Yeah. He owned it. And that's what I think we have to do in life as well. We own what we do in life. Don't go through life and be a cheerleader and be on the sideline. Own what you're doing. I'm just writing that down. That's a beautiful line. Own what you're doing. I mean, again, this, these are just perspective shifts, right? And if you can right. just spend some time with a subtle shift and, and thinking about like, what does that actually mean to you, right? If you truly own what you're doing and what really matters for, for you in your life, whether that's personally or professionally, uh, it's just so powerful. Yeah. It really is. You know, we often did this, you know, throughout the years is if you ever struggle in life and you're ever struggling with a decision, always ask yourself what matters most right now and mm -hmm. answer that question. What matters most right now? Because often the answer to that question will help you become more resilient. It will help you make a decision. It will help you. Um, you you'll know what you need to do if you can answer what matters most right now. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that question has come up. There's one of the topics I wanted to, to bring up was just to see, you've worked with so many different people and you don't have to name any names, of course, but if you think of some of the, like the, the biggest moments or biggest shifts that you've, you've helped people with, uh, I imagine that question comes into play, but like what, you know, what was the situation? What, what helped or, you know, just one of those moments where it seems like things were completely off the rails and you're able to bring someone back through, you know, your study and your training. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I've had the great fortune to work with some of the greatest performers in the world in sport. I've worked with some of the most well-known, you know, I mean, leaders in the world. And it's fascinating. Even they struggle with identity. Mm, Even yeah. they, I, I, I've had world record holders go, I, I don't know if I'm that good. I'm going, what, wait? Yeah. He's the best in the world. And I don't know if I'm that good. And it's, 
getting them to realize that their identity isn't their performance in their sport. Their identity is who they are in life. And to get that moment of realization that what you do as a job or what you do in sport, that isn't your identity. And we've all had to do that. I've had to do it. We've all had to do it. Yeah. But that moment is probably the most powerful moment. When you realize that your brain has counterproductive behaviors and your brain will take you down a rabbit hole, that if you can learn those and then you can shift that, oh, that's that's probably the most powerful thing I've ever witnessed. Oh, that's the unlock for sure. Yeah. Wow. So what's next for you? This the the phase that you're in with with your life, your work, your career, and and obviously personally as well. Like what what's lighting you up? What are you excited for? Well, I'm you know I'm building a home in Florida. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that move at the end of the year. I'm because you you I mean, were in Florida for a good amount. Oh yeah, of time, for right? a long long time. I love Florida. Uh, the um, I'm working with a company that is in this technology of neuroscience and neuroplasticity. And I think that's where I'm gonna be parking myself a lot over the next hmm. few years. You know, and obviously I'm an older guy. My son laughs at me. He says, dad, most people your age wanna just go play golf. You know, and, <laughs> and, and, I'm, and he, he literally will bend over belly laughing because yeah. I'll be jazzed about some scientific thing or I'll be jazzed about a connection that I made with a CEO that I, didn't know that I had a connection with. And he just, he, he literally will belly laugh at me because he just says, dad, most people your age want to just go play golf or play tennis. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, the, the, well, what's clear to me is like, you know, you know what lights you up. You know, you know, you're tapped into your passion, right? And right. It, it comes kind of full. This always happens. And I'm always amazed that it's, I shouldn't be shocked that this happens because it seems it seems to be the flow of, of many conversations. We start with the who are you question and it comes full, full circle. And this is kind of what's happening right now. I'm not surprised because you're, you know, you're, you're a person that, that seems like that goes through life with a very curious mind and trying to, you know, figure out the, the best path to something or fire up these projects and connect with great humans and whatnot yeah. and move people along. So I'm not, surprised to hear you getting light up lit up about making these connections and you know cutting edge true. science right i mean it yeah, makes it's sense true. it's true what can i do today you know that, that that's the one thing that i always ask myself every day what can, what did i do today that i didn't do yesterday or that i couldn't do yesterday have i learned something new today i love learning i yeah. love it. it it just lights me up do you it just uh, as we start to wrap do you have any kind of um journaling practices or the, like, is that question, do you sit down and, and reflect on that? Or is that just something that passes through your mind? Well, both, both. As soon as something, but I let things pass through my mind, but if I think it's something hot, I write it down. <laughs> okay. And I do, I end up doing that a lot. I would say every day I'm writing down something new and my notes and my phone and everything else, you know, the, um, so I do journaling from the perspective of what's new and what's next. And could this be done a little different way? And but I'm really fascinated by the brain right now, and and the whole idea of productive and counterproductive behaviors, and that's really where I'm going to be parking for a while. Yeah, because I think there's a lot there that's a frontier that we can really help people. I mean, you're you're definitely speaking to the choir for that one. It's I know. I often think you know just 
how can we get our, our minds to work for us instead of against us? You know, there's, if we can unlock great question. that. <laughs> a great question. Right. Then, you know, and, 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 and it, kind of the underlying motivation there for, at least for me is, and I just, I think, I think we deserve to feel good more, more days than not. And often it's our minds that, that flip us into this, you know, like what you said, like, you know, question identity or always, you know, predicting the, the negative track to something. Or uh, I say this often on the show, it's like we're all New York Times bestselling authors to the stories in our minds, right? They feel so damn true. And yeah. uh, there's usually a lot of, usually there's not a lot of fact to any of those, any of those stories, but they hijack us, you know, days and, and weeks. Yeah, I love to see people's response when I make this statement, because obviously it's arguable, but I love to say, you know, you're only limited by your own imagination. Yes. And I, yes. And I stop, and I want to see people's response to that. Yeah. You're only Wasn't limited by your own imagination. Yeah. Now respond to that, because a lot of people go, well, that's ridiculous, you know, and, and go, wait a minute, like, listen to what you're saying right now. You're locked in, you're rigid, you're not letting your brain be free. You know, yeah. what if you had no limitations in your life? What if you, what if, what if your brain was free? What if, what if there were no limitations? What would you do? I love getting people to open up and start thinking this way. Yeah. It reminds me, I interviewed um, someone a few years back uh, by the name of Naveen Jain. And uh, he's, he's the well-known uh, entrepreneur and whatnot in the health and, and also the, the space uh, ventures and whatnot. And he said something to the similar effect of, you know, we're born, we're born without these limiting beliefs and then we're, we're, we're taught, you know, how to limit our minds and so forth. So if we're taught, <laughs> if we're taught how to do that, we can, we can, un, or we can unlearn those patterns as well. Um, it just, you know, so for many, it, it, to your point, it seems like it's not even fathomable to, to be able to do that. But Well, here's how I drive this point home. Everybody's been around a, a, an infant, an infant yes. and a toddler. All right, we've all been around. We see that person right now. How much is that child laughing? They're laughing all the time. Exactly. I mean, there's been studies that show 500 times a day, the average toddler laugh. Now, by the time we're 25 or over, how much do we laugh? Like 15, 20? What happened? What mm. happened? Because how did that baby learn to laugh? Think about this. How did the baby learn to laugh? Because the baby's mother and father were over going, boo-boo. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, the baby starts modeling the mouth going up and they realize that feels good yeah. to smile. Then they also realize they own their mom and dad if they yeah, do that. You exactly. Know? But they, but so they learn to laugh and smile. So then what are we taught as teenagers grow up, wipe that smile off your face. You know, you got to sit still. You know, Aristotle had the peripatetic school. Aristotle never taught with us without people walking around. Who said we're supposed to put students in a classroom and they've got to mm. be quiet and not interactive? You know, what? I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're intended to have fun and laugh and smile. So we don't have to go to be so limited when we're adults. We should have fun. My standard line right now, I can't do anything about aging, but I don't have to get old. Yes. Yes. I love that. Love that mindset. I, and I think there's, I think there's so many things that if we, if we go back and, and, and think about infants or toddlers and whatnot, like I think about this from a curiosity perspective. I mean, you know, uh, kids at that, I have a six-year-old right now, so we get, we get nailed with questions all the time. A six-year-old <laughs> and a 15-month-old. I'm and, sure. 
you think about like even learning to walk or crawl around. I mean, the curiosity, I, I don't know what's going on in their minds, but they're definitely, you know, they're definitely curious. They're reaching for things. They're, you know, they're going for it. And that's how all next thing you know, you're now you're standing up and you're walking around. So there's something there of, of, and of, of just getting back to that childlike put in whatever you want in the air quotes, you know, childlike laughter, childlike curiosity. Well, here's, here's what, that's exactly what I say to my students. I say to my students, never, ever, ever lose your childlike curiosity. Yeah. I won't. I still have it. And look how old I am. I mean, yeah. I, I never want to lose my childlike curiosity. Yeah. Like, so why important. did the butterfly fly? How does that work? How does it, you know, yeah. wait, birds' bones are hollow? Wait. So true. I want more, you know? So, so the questions I get from my son, I, I you know, they're good. So it's, you know what, buddy? I've never thought of that. You're right. I, have no, <laughs> I don't good. have the answer for you, but that's, that's good. I love when those questions come up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jack, this has been fun. I mean, I could I could speak to you for hours, of course, and and like I said at the top of the show, there's just so many different threads we could we could pull. But uh, I'm really happy we spent a lot of time on rituals and just some really simple, practical mindset shifts that anyone can uh, leverage. And uh, I suspect this is uh, probably the first of many conversations. So thank you for your time and and most importantly, thank you for your your dedication to study. I know all of the, the the topics that you've you've you know you've graced and you've experienced to to help so many people on the other side. The, the ripple effect of that is 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 a beautiful thing to to see from the outside. So thank you. Well, thank you. You're very kind, and whatever contribution I've made has been a privilege, and I've I've enjoyed every moment of the ride. <sighs> Love it. Until next time. Okay, my friend. 